Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. 30-year-old Lynn Dijak sat on a thin mattress in her Buffalo, New York jail cell, replaying the events of February 14, 1993, over and over in her head. It was the day she came home to discover Crystalline, her 13-year-old daughter, dead. No, murdered. For months afterward, she lived in a fog, a state of complete disbelief that her daughter, her first baby, was truly gone. But in the wake of that confusion, a new realization was now in painfully sharp focus. There was a very good chance she'd lose more than just crystalline. If they put her away, she'd lose all her babies. Lynn ran her hand over her stomach. Pregnant with twins, she was showing quite a bit at five months, like a plump basketball under her prison uniform. She may never see them take their first steps or hear their first words. And Edward, her nine-year-old, he was in a foster home, a ward of the state until Lynn was released, if she was released. It made her sick with panic. But it was out of her control. Only a jury could decide whether or not Lynn returned home to raise her surviving children, or if she would only ever see them through a pane of glass during visiting hours. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we examined the 1993 murder of 13-year-old Crystalline Girard in Buffalo, New York. After a brief investigation, the evidence eventually led authorities to arrest her mother, 30-year-old Lynn Dijak, for the crime. This week, we'll follow Lynn's criminal proceedings. We'll also cover the shocking cold case investigation that uncovered new evidence 13 years later. Ultimately, we'll see for ourselves how the evidence matches up with the verdict. In February of 1995, almost exactly a year after losing Crystalline, Lynn Dijak was faced with a new kind of devastation. 
Immediately after giving birth to twin boys, Lynn was forced to say goodbye to her newborn sons. Even though she'd been released on bail because she was under suspicion of killing another child, the babies were placed in foster care. Lynn was heartbroken, but her nightmare was hardly over. That spring, her criminal trial arrived. Leading the prosecution was 50-year-old Assistant District Attorney Frank Clark. Clark was known as a tough litigator who fought tooth and nail in the courtroom, and he was in good company. His partner, Assistant District Attorney Joseph J. Maruzak, was a sharp prosecutor and quick on his feet. Maruzak never missed a detail. This was the team Lynn's criminal defense attorney, Andrew Lotempio, was up against. 30-year-old Lotempio had experienced trying tough cases, but this one surprised him. As he prepared for trial, he was struck by the state's distinct lack of evidence against his client. There were no witnesses to the murder. There was no forensic evidence connecting Lynn to her daughter's death. And most baffling of all, Lynn had a credible alibi for almost the entire night. The state had no case. And yet, Lutempio knew better than to walk into court overly confident. He would bring his A-game to this trial regardless. But there was no denying that he saw gaping holes in the state's argument. And he was sure he could make the jury see them too. The proceedings began in April of 1994, 14 months after Crystalline's death. In their opening statement, Assistant District Attorneys Frank Clark and Joseph J. Maruzak promised the jury that they would prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Lynn Dejack murdered her only daughter. She tried to blame Crystalline's death on an intruder, but it was a family squabble gone wrong. Maruzak assured the court that they would hear about a pattern of neglect on Lynn's part as a parent. She had issues controlling her temper, particularly when she was drunk, like she was on the night of February 13th. Clark recounted for the court how Lynn called 911 just before midnight, reporting an unwanted visitor, her boyfriend, Dennis Donahue. But Dennis eventually stormed off. Once they were alone, Lynn and Crystal got into an argument. Fifteen minutes later, Lynn was seen at a neighborhood bar within walking distance to her house. Prosecution argued it was in these 15 minutes between the 911 call and Lynn's arrival at the bar that Crystal was murdered by her mother. Clark and Maruzak promised that once they laid out all the facts for the jury, they would undoubtedly find her guilty. Lynn sat in silence at the defense table as she listened to the prosecution categorize her as a negligent parent and an alcoholic. She suppressed her knee-jerk reaction to defend herself against these accusations, knowing she had to stay focused. None of those insults mattered in the face of murder charges. Defense attorney Andrew Lotempio knew this too. He didn't waste time fighting the perception that Lynn was a neglectful mother. Instead, 
Lotempio readily admitted to the jury that Lynn drank too much and often left her children unsupervised for extended periods. But he argued that poor parenting choices did not make Lynn a killer, and there was no physical evidence to suggest it either. Instead, there was another viable suspect in Crystalline's death that the state had chosen to ignore. Lynn's ex-boyfriend, Dennis Donahue. This was a man who had stalked and threatened Lynn on the night of the murder. Hell-bent on revenge, Dennis had motive to kill Crystalline to spite Lynn. His client, Lynn, however, had no reason to attack her daughter. This, Lotempio stressed, showed more than enough reasonable doubt in the state's case. Ultimately, the jury had to let Lynn walk free. After Lotempio's opening statement, Assistant District Attorney Maruzak wasted no time characterizing Lynn Dijak as an unfit mother. He paraded several of Lynn's neighbors to the stand. They all testified to Lynn's reputation as a hard partier. They often saw her walking the streets drunk, and Lynn frequently left her children home alone. 13-year-old Crystalline, just a child herself, was forced to be a caregiver to her younger brother, 8-year-old Edward. She regularly watched him at night while Lynn was out drinking. The next morning, Crystal got him up and ready for school when Lynn was too hungover to do it herself. Or worse, when she had failed to come back home at all. Maruzak tried to paint a disheartening picture for the jury. Lynn Dijak was not a mother who cared for her children above herself. On this cross-examination, defense attorney Lotempio cut straight to the point, trying to manage some damage control. He asked each of Lynn's neighbors the same question. Had they ever seen her abuse her children? Across the board, none of them had. Neglect, yes, but not one had witnessed Lynn ever lay a hand on either of them. After establishing Lynn's questionable character, the prosecution shifted gears, laying out the facts of the case. ADA Joseph Maruzak called Detective Michael Lyons to the stand to present the evidence from the crime scene to the jury. He described what he found when he walked into the DJAC home on February 14th. Crystalline, lying across her bed, naked and deceased. Lyons said that she was wet, as if she'd just gotten out of the shower. Lotempio immediately sat up at the defense table and rifled through his notes. Nowhere in the incident report had Lyons noted that Crystalline's body was wet. While the detail was not very significant on its own, in the context of the larger case against Lynn, it was a bombshell. It made absolutely no sense for Lynn to attack her daughter and then strip her body unless she was staging a sexual assault, perhaps as a way to shift blame onto her boyfriend, Dennis. Even so, Lotempio knew the state would have a hard time selling that explanation to a jury. It was difficult enough to believe a mother would kill her own daughter, much less expose her body in a hasty cover-up. 
But if Crystalline was already nude when she was attacked, the state didn't need to explain why Lynn removed her clothes. Instead, they could focus on the narrative of an argument that got out of hand. But for the time being, Lotempio didn't have a way to combat the new direction. It was a point for the prosecution. In an effort to keep this momentum going, Assistant District Attorney Joseph Maruzak called one of his most important witnesses to the stand, Lynn's ex-boyfriend, Dennis Donahue. Dennis was originally a prime suspect in Crystalline's murder, but he cleared his name early on when he successfully passed a polygraph test. Convinced that Dennis wasn't involved in Crystalline's death, Chief ADA Frank Clark made him an offer. In exchange for his testimony against Lynn, the state granted Dennis full immunity. No matter what he said, he couldn't be prosecuted at any time. Dennis recounted on the stand that he and Lynn got into an argument at her house the evening of February 13th, but that he took off as soon as she called the police. He described Lynn as furious and belligerent when he left, hurling insults and screaming after him. ADA Maruzak clarified, was this behavior typical? Dennis answered, absolutely. Whenever Lynn got drunk, she got angry. The night of the 13th, she was on a real bender. Not only was she in a drunken rage, but she was also hopped up on cocaine. He thought she was capable of anything that night. Defense attorney Andrew Lotempio attacked Dennis's story head on, still hoping to establish reasonable doubt. He started small. Wasn't Dennis also high on cocaine the night of Crystal's murder? Dennis admitted that he was, but not as much as Lynn. He was in control. Lotempio pushed harder. What did Dennis do the rest of the night after he left Lynn's house? Surely that wasn't the last place he went. Dennis admitted that he followed Lynn to her mother's bar, and when she left with her friend, Michael Nichter, Dennis again followed after. He stalked and harassed Lynn and Michael until about 5 a.m. the following morning. With this confession, Lotempio went in for the kill. Where did he go after 5 a.m.? Did he go back to Lynn's house, where her children slept? But Dennis flat out denied it. He didn't have anything to do with Crystalline's murder. He didn't know who was responsible, but it wasn't him. Assistant District Attorney Joseph Maruzak knew Lotempio was trying to sow reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury, implying that Dennis was an unexplored suspect. He would nip that in the bud with his next witness, Keith Kramer. Keith and Lynn were close friends who previously lived together. When Lynn found Crystalline dead on February 14th, she had called Keith first, even before calling the police. On the stand, Keith recounted Lynn's panicked 2 p.m. phone call. He could barely understand her. She was crying so hard. When he got to the house and saw Crystal's body, Keith was the one who called 911. Keith told the jury that later that day, while driving back from the police station together, he asked Lynn if she was involved in Crystalline's death, but she didn't respond to his accusation. In fact, she said nothing at all. 
she simply turned away and looked out the car window. Assistant District Attorney Maruzak then asked Keith if the phone call at 2 p.m. was the first time he talked to Lynn on February 14th. It wasn't. Lynn had called him earlier, right after midnight. She was at her mother's bar, crying, frantic. But when Keith asked her what was wrong, all she told him was that she could never go home again. Maruzak let that sentence hang in the air. He gave the jury time to contemplate why Lynn wouldn't want to go home. Perhaps it was because she knew her daughter lay dead in her bedroom. Coming up, the prosecution takes a chance on a witness with a shaky past, but will the jury believe him? Now back to the story. In April of 1994, 30-year-old Lynn Dejack sat in the Erie County Courthouse on trial for the murder of her 13-year-old daughter, Crystalline. She listened as the prosecution painted her as a drunk and neglectful mother. Assistant District Attorneys Frank Clark and Joseph J. Maruzak told the jury that she repeatedly left her children home alone so she could go out, drink, and run around with men. And it was all true. But this was merely an opening play for the prosecution, paving the way for their dark horse, Wayne Hudson. Wayne was the one witness who could tell the court he knew for sure Lynn killed her daughter. But more than that, he could tell them exactly how and when she did. With ADA Maruzak's guidance, Wayne took the jury through his story. One afternoon after Crystalline's death, Wayne and Lynn went out drinking. Over the course of the day, Lynn grew more and more upset. Wayne tried to ask her what was wrong, but she just shook her head and cried. As the hours and drinks went by, Lynn only became more distraught. Finally, she broke down, telling Wayne that she couldn't take the pressure anymore. In between sobs, she confessed. She had killed Crystalline in a fit of rage on February 13th. Then, after Crystalline was dead, Lynn told Wayne she'd left the house to go out drinking. With her fingers slightly clawed, she demonstrated to him how she strangled her own daughter to death. On the stand, Wayne held up his own hands, mimicking her movements, miming the attack. The visual of Lynn's hands around her daughter's throat one minute and her out partying the next stunned the courtroom. But Wayne hadn't come forward to the district attorney with this story purely out of a sense of duty. Just like Dennis Donahue, he too was getting something out of this damning testimony. Wayne was facing a 25-to-life sentence on his third felony charge for forgery. And Lotempio suspected the DA's office had given him a plea deal in exchange for taking the stand against Lynn. As soon as he took the floor for his cross-examination, Lotempio pounced on Wayne. Was he getting anything in exchange for this conveniently damning testimony? Wayne paused before answering, 
Choosing his words carefully, he admitted that the DA had allowed him to be released from jail on his own recognizance rather than having to post bail. However, Wayne denied that the prosecution had offered him any sort of plea bargain that would keep him out of prison entirely. This was a significantly smaller favor than Lotempio had expected. Wayne was still facing significant jail time, yet he testified anyway. Lotempio's planned bombshell fizzled out to a dud. At the conclusion of Wayne's testimony, the prosecution rested their case. But when defense attorney Andrew Lotempio rose to address the judge, he stated that he had no witnesses to present. Lotempio could have called Lynn to the stand, and spectators certainly hoped he would. Everyone wanted to hear what Crystalline's mother had to say for herself, but doing so would open his client up to a harsh cross-examination by the state. Lynn was a grieving parent. He didn't know if she could handle the pressure. In the end, Lotempio and Lynn decided she would not take the stand. Instead, Andrew Lotempio put the full force of his defense into his closing statement. He knew the jury was judging his client as a mother. She drank too much. She brought home strange men. She left her kids unsupervised overnight. She made decisions the jurors would never understand. So he once again conceded that Lynn wasn't a stellar mother. They'd heard testimony to support that. He wasn't going to try to convince them otherwise, but that didn't make her a murderer. The foundation of Lotempio's case rested on dismantling the assertion that Lynn killed Crystalline around midnight between the time that she called 911 and walked to the bar. So Lotempio took the jury through this proposed timeline. He emphasized that only 15 minutes passed between those two events. The state claimed that in that short span, Lynn flew into a rage and overpowered Crystalline, who was actually larger than her mother, and then proceeded to strangle her to death. That process alone would have taken around five minutes. After Crystal was dead, Lynn then would have had to undress her daughter, move her to the bed, hit her with a rolling pin, and cut her left breast. Then, Lotempio pointed out, Lynn still had to clean up the scene. Finally, when she had finished, Lynn would have walked down to the bar all the while needing to act as if nothing had happened. Lotempio told the jury that all of these different actions, the strangling and undressing, the cleanup and walking to the bar, were impossible to do in under 15 minutes. Dennis Donahue, however, who was unaccounted for after 5 a.m., had all the time in the world. All of this, he stressed to the jury, added up to more than reasonable doubt. They had only one option. They had to find Lynn Dejack not guilty. Undeterred by Andrew Lotempio's passionate and well-articulated closing, Assistant District Attorney Joseph Maruzak stood to address the courtroom. 
He reminded the jury that the two detectives at the crime scene had found Crystalline's body wet. Crystal had probably just stepped out of the shower when she and Lynn began to argue. This was why Crystal was found in the nude, not because she was sexually assaulted. Then Maruzak paused, as if to reconsider. Perhaps, he said to the jury, Crystal wasn't in the shower at all. Maybe she was wet because Lynn stripped and cleaned her body after the murder. This would explain why there was no forensic evidence found at the scene tying Lynn to the murder. Maruzak let this idea sink in. Once he was sure he had captured the jury's attention, he continued. Regardless of why Crystal was nude and wet, Maruzak argued that the remainder of the evidence was clear. Lynn flew into a drunken rage and killed her own daughter. Her confession to Wayne Hudson confirmed it. The jury must return a verdict of guilty of murder. The courtroom was silent as Maruzak sat down. Both sides had given compelling arguments. Now it was in the hands of the jury. Presiding Judge Michael L. D'Amico gave them their instructions. He explained the differences between the charges against Lynn. They could find her guilty of second-degree murder if they believed Lynn intended to kill Crystalline or acted with depraved indifference to her daughter's life. But if the jury believed Lynn had intended only to hurt Crystalline, only accidentally killing her in the process, they could find her guilty of first-degree manslaughter. However, if the state did not meet their burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Lynn was Crystalline's killer, they had to find her not guilty on all counts. As the jurors left to deliberate, Lynn's family waited, paralyzed with anxiety. Until they knew if she was coming home, it felt like the world was standing still. As the hours slowly passed, they tried to convince themselves that the prosecution's case was too thin. There wasn't enough evidence. There was no way Lynn would be found guilty. But no matter what they told themselves, it made no difference. The decision was never theirs to make. Lynn's fate lay in the hands of 12 strangers, the Erie County jury. Finally, on April 20th, 1994, all parties hurried back to the courthouse. The jury had finally reached their verdict after nearly seven hours of deliberation. Lynn tried to read the jurors' faces as they shuffled into the room, but nothing in their expressions gave her any clue as to her fate. The judge ordered Lynn to rise. As the jury foreman read the decision, Lynn shut her eyes tight. On the count of second-degree murder, the jury found Lynn guilty. That was the last thing Lynn heard. The word guilty echoed in her head, blocking out all other noise. She stood there, uncomprehending, as the judge thanked the jurors for their service and dismissed them from the courtroom. The court officer then approached a stunned Lynn with handcuffs. As they were placed around her wrists, she couldn't stop shaking. Then, with one last look back at her family, 
Lynn was taken to a holding cell. But there was no time for her to feel sorry for herself. As she sat in her jail cell, waiting for her sentencing, her family was being torn apart. Lynn made her boyfriend, Chuck, the father of her infant boys, promise to get their twins out of foster care. But more than that, he had to fight to get nine-year-old Edward, too. Whatever happened to her didn't matter anymore. She just needed Chuck to keep her sons together. After languishing in custody for seven weeks, Lynn finally learned her fate on June 7, 1994. She would spend 25 years behind bars at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison over six hours away from her home in Buffalo. Not only would she be separated from her children, unable to raise them, Lynn would hardly ever see them. Coming up, a glimmer of hope appears for Lynn Dijak. Now back to the story. In 1994, 30-year-old Lynn Dijak was handed down a 25-year sentence for the murder of her daughter, Crystalyn Gerard. As her appeals were denied, again and again, she began to lose hope that she would ever see her three sons grow up together or hold her partner, Chuck, again. At times, she considered taking her own life, but she knew if she died in prison, she'd always be remembered as a child killer. So she chose to hold on and fight. Then finally, in 2006, Lynn no longer had to wage the battle for her freedom alone. After 13 years in prison, 43-year-old Lynn had a champion, a Buffalo detective named Dennis Delano. 54-year-old Delano had just transferred into the homicide division of the Buffalo Police Department. He was tasked with working on cold cases and had his pick of any unsolved murder on the shelf. His aggressive pursuit of any lead earned him a reputation as one of the most dogged investigators on the force. In late 2006, Delano was approached by a fellow member of his church whose sister, Joan Giambra had been murdered in Buffalo in 1993, the same year as Crystalline. The woman trusted that if anyone could solve her sister's case, it was Detective Delano. So he pulled out the old case file and evidence box and got to work. 42-year-old Joan Giambra was a mother on the brink of divorce in 1993. She planned to have her husband, Sam, served with divorce papers in mid-September. But on September 9, 1993, seven months after Crystal Gerard's murder, a friend of Joan's found her naked on her living room floor, dead. Her 11-year-old daughter, Kathleen, was also found nude, lying across her mother's body. However, she was still alive, unconscious, but thankfully alive. Investigators tried to piece together who attacked the mother and daughter, but Kathleen was unable to help. The traumatized girl couldn't remember a thing. And while Joan's estranged husband was looked at closely, police couldn't find enough evidence against him or anyone else for that matter. 
the case seemed destined to go unsolved. That is, until Dennis Delano pulled it from the shelf. Delano found Jones' nail clippings in the evidence box, but when he checked the report, he realized they were never tested for forensic evidence. If Jones scratched her attacker, she may have taken their DNA with her. When Delano sent the clippings to the lab, they found male DNA. This broke the case wide open. Delano re-interviewed Jones' two older children and asked if their mother had any men in her life at the time of the murder. Both mentioned the same man, a local bartender who Joan had gone on a few dates with, Dennis Donahue. Detective Delano and his partner tracked Dennis down in early 2007. Now 55 years old, Dennis was surprised to hear the detectives were reinvestigating Joan's murder. Willing to help out in any way, he agreed to provide a DNA sample, just as he had done years ago in the Crystalline Gerard murder. Delano was shocked. Dennis was willing to cooperate, almost to the point that the detectives were ready to rule him out as a suspect entirely. He definitely acted like a man with nothing to hide, but they took the sample anyway and immediately sent it to the lab. While he waited for the DNA results, Delano couldn't shake the crime scene photos of Joan's body found on the living room floor, nude and on her back. They looked familiar, like the photos of another cold case he had looked at before, the 1975 murder of Carol Reed. Sure enough, when Delano pulled the Reed evidence box off the shelf, he saw exactly what he expected. Carol was found in the very same position as Joan Giambra. But then Delano noticed yet another similarity in the file, the name Dennis Donahue. Dennis lived down the hall from Carol and was questioned in her murder. But this wasn't the end of it. Even the death dates pointed towards Dennis. Carol and Joan were both murdered on September 9th, Dennis's birthday. The connection hit Delano like a bolt of lightning. He had potentially uncovered a serial killer. Delano was still processing this possibility when his phone rang. On the other end of the line was an anonymous tipster. They revealed that Dennis Donahue had been an early suspect in yet another strangulation, the 1993 murder of Crystalline Gerard. She was also found nude. Unlike the other two cases, Crystalline's murder wasn't on Delano's cold case list. It was solved, and her mother, Lynn, was already halfway through her 25-year sentence for the crime. Delano started to reinvestigate Crystalline Gerard's murder, but when the district attorney's office found out, they told the detective to stop wasting his time. Crystalline's murder was a closed case. Reopening it was a drain on department resources, but Delano persisted. He reached out to Lynn's trial attorney, Andrew Lotempio, to discuss the parallels between Crystal's murder and the other two women. 
Lotempio was eager to help. He had never doubted Lynn's innocence and carried the weight of her conviction throughout his career. If Delano could get him the evidence, Lotempio promised he would get the case back into court. When the DNA from Joan Giambra's nail clippings finally came back, Delano's hunch was confirmed. The sample was a match to Dennis Donahue. This was the break they needed. In September 2007, he was charged in the murder of Joan Giambra, 14 years after her death. As much satisfaction as Detective Delano found from solving cold cases, he now felt immense pressure. Not only did he think Dennis got away with Crystalline's murder, he believed the wrong person was paying the price. Delano knew it was an uphill battle to get someone out of prison once they'd been convicted. He needed solid evidence. He needed DNA. Delano went through the entire case file to find what genetic material had been run and what could still be analyzed. But as he sifted through the samples, he was shocked to realize that none of them had ever been tested. So Delano picked up the ball that the DA's office had dropped. He sent the samples to the lab and asked the technicians to compare any male DNA found to Dennis Donahue. In the fall of 2007, the results came back. And just as Delano had expected, it was a match. Dennis's DNA was found in three key places, on Crystalline's bedding, in the blood spatter on the bedroom wall, and from a vaginal swab from Crystal's sexual assault kit. With this discovery, Lynn had enough evidence to warrant a new hearing in November of 2007. Attorney Andrew Lotempio argued in front of Judge Michael L. D'Amico, the same judge who sent Lynn to prison 13 years earlier. Lotempio believed that 44-year-old Lynn deserved a new trial based on this newly discovered evidence. However, the state countered that the DNA did not fully exonerate Lynn. Her conviction was based on the confession she had allegedly given to Wayne Hudson, and Wayne stood by his original testimony. After hearing arguments, Judge D'Amico took one week to make his ruling. Then, on November 28, 2007, Lynn's supporters gathered in court to hear the decision. 54-year-old Chuck Peters, the father of Lynn's twin boys, was among them. Chuck had stood by Lynn's side for 13 and a half years while she was in prison. And just as Lynn had hoped, Chuck kept his promise. He had succeeded in getting all three of Lynn's sons out of foster care and raised them together. And now there was finally hope Lynn would be able to come home too. Judge D'Amico told Lynn to stand while he gave his ruling. And just as she had 13 years before, Lynn couldn't stop shaking. She held her breath, waiting. Then D'Amico vacated Lynn's conviction and ordered a new trial. Lynn was as stunned and overwhelmed as she was when she was convicted. This was the day she had prayed for, 
Now there was hope. She would finally have the chance to clear her name at a new trial. But then, in a flurry of motions, the state suddenly waived the right to appeal and consented to bail. Most likely, they already realized the proceedings would be a waste of resources in the face of the DNA evidence. As Judge D'Amico ordered Lynn's release, she broke down. She wept when she realized she was not going back to prison that day. Later that afternoon, she walked out of the courthouse, a free woman, and into the arms of her family. But her battle wasn't over. Lynn had gained herself a formidable enemy. 64-year-old former assistant DA Frank Clark was now the Erie County District Attorney, and he was hell-bent on keeping Lynn in prison. Even after the court set aside the verdict, Clark stood by the original jury's decision. He told the media he was considering taking Lynn to trial for second-degree manslaughter, claiming she showed depraved indifference by leaving her daughter home alone. Before he decided what charge he would pursue at Lynn's trial, Clark knew he needed more evidence. So he ordered the case to be reinvestigated, but not by the Buffalo Cold Case Squad. They had already made it clear they were on Lynn Dejack's side. Instead, he gave the case to the homicide unit. The Buffalo Police Department then hired forensic expert Dr. Michael Bodden to review the case file, the autopsy report, and the existing evidence. After conducting a thorough investigation, Bodden concluded in February 2008 that Crystal did not die of strangulation after all. In fact, she wasn't even murdered. He ruled the cause of death to be a cocaine overdose. The original medical examiner in 1993 did detect cocaine in Crystalline's system, but reported it was too low to cause an overdose. However, Dr. Bodden declared the level was high enough. Bodden concluded that the other injuries to Crystal's body were from her physical reaction to the powerful stimulant. She likely hit her head on the bedside table while convulsing, knocking it over. This new cause of death fully exonerated Lynn. She no longer faced the prospect of another trial, but it was a troubling development. Lynn knew her daughter wouldn't have done cocaine willingly. Lynn continued to tell anyone who would listen that Dennis Donahue killed Crystalline. Any cocaine in Crystalline's system must have been from Dennis, who had admitted to using cocaine that very night. But even if Lynn could prove Dennis was responsible for Crystal's murder, he would never be charged, protected by the original immunity deal. However, this deal did not cover any other crimes. In May 2008, Dennis was formally convicted of the murder of Joan Giambra and sentenced to 25 years in prison, a conviction he's still currently serving. Lynn Dijak was the first woman in the United States to be exonerated through DNA evidence. 
but she wasn't satisfied with her freedom alone. She lost over 13 years of her life in prison while wrongfully convicted. Though she couldn't get her time back, Lynn decided to sue for compensation in 2011. Lynn brought a federal lawsuit against New York State, the County of Erie, the City of Buffalo, and the entire Buffalo Police Department. She also named Frank Clark, Joseph Maruzak, and a number of detectives as individual defendants. Lynn had fired back at all the men responsible for imprisoning her 18 years earlier, ultimately asking for $30 million in damages. In late 2012, Lynn settled for $2.7 million, and just a few months later, she announced she had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Lynn claimed the diagnosis was win-win for her. As long as she was alive, she was with Chuck and her boys. And after she passed, she would finally be with Crystalline again. Lynn D. Jack Peters died 18 months later, in June of 2014, at the age of 50. In tribute, Don Esmond of the Buffalo News wrote, She showed the world how much affliction one person can endure. She proved how heavy a load someone can carry and still carry on. As admirable as that effort and accomplishment was, hers was not a cross that anyone should have to bear. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty is written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.